Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There have been some theses written that say, you know, coffee is at the heart of the Enlightenment, the Industrial Revolution, all of these things, because actually here it is, something sober, something that, you know, gets people more able to sit in a positive cognitive space, if you like. Ahoy there, and welcome to Patented, a podcast all about the history of inventions. I'm your host, Dallas Campbell. Thank you for joining me. Today, we're going to be talking about something that's been called by some a drink for the devil, and by others, the elixir of life itself. I am, of course, talking about the only psychoactive substance you can consume on the job without eyebrows being raised. It's coffee, of course. Historically, a cup of coffee was a luxury, and now it's widely available. It's cheap-ish, quick to make, part of the essential hipster lifestyle, and a daily essential for many others. But how did this happen? Who made the first cup of coffee and why? Coffee historian Jonathan Morris is joining me today as he walks us through the timeline of coffee from its invention, which is a story that features dancing goats, what else, through to the instant satisfaction of that 1980s staple Nescafe, or Nescafe Gold Blend, if you are wanting to be posh. Jonathan, lovely to have you on the show. I've been really enjoying your podcast. It's absolutely fantastic and it's quite soporific, but not in a, I'm slightly bored way, but just the music is really nice. It's got kind of really nice, gentle music behind it. Okay, well, that's my co-host, James. He ah. loves twinkling the ivories, so um, he's the guy there. It's really nice. And given coffee is the, what is it, the black? The black enemy of sleep, yes. The black enemy that's of it. sleep. You have that nice juxtaposition between the black enemy of sleep and James, your producer's lovely, tinkly music. Yeah. Anyway, I recommend your podcast, which is called The History of Coffee, isn't it? It is called A History of Coffee Podcast Series. That's it. Does what it says on the tin. Does what it says on the tin. Congratulations. And also your book, which is also called A History of Coffee, but not yeah, podcast. Yeah, Coffee, A Global History. Again, the tin. <laughs> it's absolutely fascinating because, I mean, I suppose this is the thing about this podcast is that quite often the things we talk about, you don't quite realise what a can of worms you're opening. You think, oh, well, there may be an interesting story here, or maybe it's just a description of how things begin or whatever. But very often there are these wonderful stories and ideas that sort of creep up when you're not expecting it. And I wasn't sure about coffee at first. I'm like, well, where was coffee invented? I kind of assumed maybe somewhere in the Middle East or somewhere in Africa. And then all these wonderful little gems of stories appeared. So I heartily recommend book slash podcast. Thank you. And I also realised my podcast isn't infinite in length of time and yet there seem to be infinite stories i'm struggling where do we dive in to introduce the history of coffee the beginning well we can do the beginning which is full of all those things yeah let's start at the beginning let's start at the very beginning it's a very good place to start the coffee bean where how why what let's start with what what is a coffee bean what is a coffee bean? Okay, so the coffee bean, it's actually the seed, of course. It's the seed in the centre of the coffee fruit, which is a red fruit. We tend to call it the coffee cherry. Okay, so 
most of what, if you like, coffee is about is getting that seed out, cleaning it down to the point that it can come over to you and then roasting it up. So we have lots of technological innovations, processing innovations, etc. interventions, if you like, to get from one to t'other. Does anyone use the actual fruit? Does it look like a cherry? Is it the size? Of, I'm not familiar with the actual yep. fruit, I suppose. Yeah, it is about cherry size. It's, it's a small cherry. You could eat that cherry. It is quite sweet. And the fruit itself, really the primary way that the fruit has been used has been dried. And that actually takes us into your question about where coffee starts, because it's that dried fruit and using the husk of the fruit that creates the first sort of coffee beverages. Ah, interesting. So before, so the origins of coffee aren't even the coffee bean, it's the fruit that the bean comes from. Exactly. Yeah. So there's there's an important moment really, because um, the first sort of uses of that coffee fruit and if you like coffee product are really not as beverage. We know that coffee was used the kind of the leaves of the coffee were used to make a kind of a tea the leaves of the plant and the fruit was dried and then at times used to create either a foodstuff which would be kind of you know mashed together with sort of dairy product or whatever to create almost like an energy ball or to use the dried fruits to create again a kind of a fruit tea where you basically use all the dried fruit and its content and use that as a decoction, if you like. And what part of the world are we in at the moment? The coffee tree or the particular one that we use grows naturally in the forests of Ethiopia and in that Horn of Africa region. And what starts to happen when we first become aware of the use of coffee product, if you like, as a beverage, is when that begins to be shipped as dried fruit originally into Arabia and the beverage that you can make from that which is a beverage called Kisha begins to be adopted by initially Sufis and sort of mystic cults of Islam as it were that used it for their religious purposes. It's quite nice that the origins of coffee start there and you make the point that the origins of coffee start in the place where the origins of humans also is. <laughs> exactly right yeah. Given that we have shaped this particular berry, but also I presume coffee over the years has quite a, a huge influence on human culture and human history, I think. It had a massive influence <laughs> on human culture, yes. So we get this sort of proto-coffee drink, which is called Kisha? Yeah, Kisha. And when are we drinking this? This is long, long, long time ago. So we know that really from about the 1450s, that's being drunk. It may well have been being drunk earlier or variations of that probably almost certainly were being drunk earlier in Ethiopia. But that's when we can really date it to because that's when we know that it started becoming imported. But I mean, it's sail across the bottom of the Red Sea, the strait there that connects the Horn of Africa over to Arabia. Yeah, there's a quite an interesting sort of geographical link. The fact that it's there, it can sort of tap into the trade routes around that particular area. Exactly right, yes. Presumably if it had been in West Africa, then it wouldn't have had the same... It would have been a different thing. I mean, there are many species of coffee in West yeah. Africa, I think, which is, you know, it's about 120 species of coffee. But this coffee, which again is confusingly, but now we understand why, named Kaffir Arabica, even though it originates in Africa, this is the one that we've used for most of history for making coffee. Okay. So it's an interesting thing, because normally when you eat a fruit, you eat the fruit and you chuck away the pips. Yeah. So at what point was there a point? And I know there's a sort of nice, slightly allegorical tale of how yeah. this happened. But at what point did some bright spot go, 
Actually, you know what's nicer than the um, than the? I'm going to start eating or doing something with these pips. Yeah, we don't have an exact story. What we know is I want exact stories, Jonathan. Well, you, exact stories <laughs> that you see. As historians, we know to be careful about these things. Otherwise, mm. I would be talking to you about dancing goats and spitting your pips in the fire. Tell us about the dancing goats because that seems a central thing. So the allegorical main story is of a guy who has been given or had the name of Caldi, who's a goat herder, who sees his coats eating these red cherries and getting excited and dancing. So he decides to try them himself and he does exactly the same thing. And he takes them to a kind of religious scholar, if you like, a monk, and says, you know, you should try these. And the guy tries them and spits them out, but they go into the fire and in the fire, they make a beautiful smell. And they, of course, because you would, after all, just think at that moment, oh, let's pick those out of the fire, grind them up and make a hot beverage with them. (laughs) So this is the story. I mean, that story we know from about the 1670s when it's written down, basically by a guy from Lebanon who goes to Rome and writes about his native culture. And that's the origin story that he gives for coffee. But it is very much an origin story. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's funny. There's so many stories like that in history, particularly it's sort of inventions, and some are true and some are not true. I I mean, I suppose things like leaving a Petri dish at the window and suddenly you've discovered penicillin is kind of true. And again, it's one of these sort of eureka moments. But we think this is definitely, there was no goat herd. I think we can say this is definitely false. Mm. But what we can say is very interesting about the elements in that other what's happened is they've managed to combine elements that probably came over many centuries but put them all together in one story so the involvement of that religious scholar is obviously very significant because that's the connection with islam and the adoption of coffee as a legitimate beverage in islam and then the roasting side of it is obviously, I mean, that isn't how that developed. But the sense that we have is, as I said, the first use of this is this quiche beverage with the dried fruit. But of course, by the time coffee begins to spread even up Arabia, so by the time it reaches into Turkey, it's very much more using the bean. And of course, the bean would be a much more concentrated and easier to ship than it would be to ship dried fruit. So there's a logic to that. And there's also a question that you could say that as it moves, we also notice that, you know, the roasting becomes a bigger part of the process. So if you think about Arabic methods of preparation, they were not really roasting the beans, they were what you might call toasting them, they would put them in an open fire, you would sort of slightly grill them in the way that you know how we sometimes toast pine kernels or whatever, just do that lightly in a pan, light colour just to increase the height. But by the time we get into coffee becoming available in Turkish coffee houses and so forth, then we're looking at serious roasting over a fire, blackening it, and that's your black enemy of sleep. I know that enemy. I know that enemy very well. I used to hate coffee, actually. When I was a teenager, I used to not like coffee at all. This is in the 80s before we had, you know, it was instant coffee. And I want to talk to you about instant coffee. I remember I had to write an essay, and I hadn't written it, and I decided to pull an all-nighter to write this essay. And then my friend Will... He said, well, why don't you drink all this coffee and that'll help you stay awake? And I hated it. I drank it. It was disgusting. But I drank it and drank it and drank it and stayed awake and stayed awake and failed to write the essay. But by the end of it, I had a massive coffee addiction and haven't looked back since. But, you know, the other interesting thing there, Dallas, is when you say, you know, you hated coffee and then you started as a teenager. There's a good point to make, which is that, you know, in a way, nobody likes coffee the first time they taste it because it's bitter. It's bitter. And particularly the kind of coffee that you and I were tasting. I'm therefore generously including you in my age group. We both suffered. I mean, you know, if you didn't stick, or frankly, a large amount of sugar, milk or both in it, 
it was pretty undrinkable. That's not what coffee should be tasting like. I'm still amazed when I go around places, particularly in the UK, and they still have instant coffee. I'm like, come on. (laughs) I mean, just making normal coffee is pretty instant. It doesn't take a long time to get a cafetiere or something and make coffee. Yeah. It's a sort of throwback to the 80s. As a massive generalisation, I would say one of the more interesting things about coffee is that most of the really quite high level applied sort of food processing science that's gone into coffee has been to create products that are substantively worse than the actual beverage. <laughs> that's really and Well, actually, I want to talk about some coffee tech yeah. in a bit, sort of instant coffee and Nespresso and all this kind of stuff in a little bit. Take us from, so we've left the Horn of Africa, the cradle of yeah. civilization, cradle of coffee. We've gone up into places like Turkey and the Middle East. I mean, coffee houses, I know, were sort of big in European times and they became places of great interest and salons and all this kind of stuff. And, well, you know, I suppose because, as we say, it has a psychoactive element, coffee. People became addicted to coffee, like I am a massive coffee addict. Doesn't seem to do us too much harm. But so when did the Europeans embrace this new drink? Yeah, okay. So really, coffee hits Europe in the late 16th and above all the 17th century. We think that there was almost certainly there was coffee in Europe in the late 16th century, probably in Venice with the kind of traders that would have been coming from the Ottoman Empire, who were mostly the people that introduced coffee into Europe. And then coffee houses begin opening. And actually, as I sort of do argue in the book, when you look at this seriously, funnily enough, actually, the first European coffee houses that sell coffee as a beverage are in London and in Britain. And that is has really that's as much about the ability of guilds and the fact that coffee was seen as a medicine in Europe at that time. But the point that you're making about psychoactivity is really important because this is a beverage that gives you a buzz, but that keeps you very, very sober. And that's in contrast to everything that's drunk previously, whereby most people are drinking some form of very diluted fermented alcohol you make the point that in the alcohol, you know, people for breakfast would drink beer and wine. Absolutely. Yeah. And which in my past I have done, I admit, but now I... <laughs> yeah, probably not in the way they did. But I mean, that's where lots of our experiences like, you know, small beer, weak beer come from, because that's what you actually would have. I'm mean, One of the best history lectures I ever went to when I was an undergrad, one of the starting ones was, you know, it started, well, you need to understand a bit of these times. So for example, nuns drank eight pints a day. And when you think about that, it's, you know, no matter how weak that beer was. <laughs> That's going to the loo a lot. As a man of a certain age, I understand what it's like to go to the loo a lot. And I can imagine those nuns would be up and down. Yeah, I had not even contemplated that, but you've added a whole new dimension to my historical picture and understanding with that. But I mean, so the point being, therefore, that, you know, this is actually a coffee as something that not only keeps you sober, but actually in many ways, you know, speeds up your metabolism, speeds up your brain function. And there have been some theses written that say, you know, coffee is at the heart of the Enlightenment, the Industrial Revolution, all of these things, because actually, here it is, something sober, something that, you know, gets people more able to sit in a positive cognitive space, if you like. But also, presumably, am I right in thinking, well, the coffee house, just the fact that it's a social gathering, a place where people will come together and share ideas in a kind of a proto-Facebook, proto 
social area. Is that is that fair? It's suddenly, well, presumably pubs as well, drinking places, but they would have presumably been a bit more bawdy. Well, I mean, that, and there's your inherent difference, yeah, because, you know, pubs are drinking places, but they tend not to be good places, therefore, to try and do business, for example. Whereas coffee houses became the absolute place to do business. And as you say, information exchange. So, I mean, that you know, the notion of the stock exchange originally happening in a coffee house called Jonathan's, I'm pleased to say. Or, you know, the Lloyd's Shipping Brokers was originally a coffee house called Lloyd's. The Royal Society was originally based in a coffee house. These places became known and their clientele would meet there to do this kind of business. I forgot that. Yeah, the Royal Society, which was the oldest scientific institution, I think, or maybe the Royal Institution. Anyway, that began in a coffee house where these gentlemen of science... Of course, science was very different then, but would have come together and shared ideas. That's a nice idea. So we really can thank coffee as a substance for pretty much life, <laughs> modern <laughs> life on a, not just breakfast, but everything. I wonder what the world would have been like if we hadn't had coffee. And can I just ask you about the sort of technology? You talk about sort of, we moved from sort of frying the beans, as it were, toasting to roasting. Why did that happen? And like, would it, if I go back in time to London, to the 17th century, would a cup of coffee have tasted the same or would it have been vastly different? I think it would have tasted brutal. So it would have tasted interesting in the first place because at that time, all the beans would have come basically from Mocha, so from either from Ethiopia or Yemen. So you've got only one source of bean, but they're obviously going to be quite stale. The adulteration was fairly common so you might well find other things in there like sawdust other bits of vegetation or so forth but really the whole concept was that you really roasted this dark dark was what made it different dark was what it was about and there is an element in coffee and coffee roasting that is the difference between do i taste the bean or do i taste the roast on the bean and I mean, this is a bit like cooking, you know, it's like if I cook you a meat joint, and I do it very well, then actually what I've got is all that sort of crunchy caramel stuff on top, which tastes great. But of course, your meat yourself, you don't really taste the meat, you're tasting the crust on top of it. I mean, that's an interesting point, these sort of difference in flavour. Did it become a kind of hipster thing like it is now? You know, when you walk into a coffee shop now, and you're just bombarded with hipster words. And I wonder what it was like in the 1700s. Was it as equally as fashionable and hipstery? I think it was equally as fashionable, without doubt. You know, that was the place to go. That was the place to be and the place to be seen. And I wouldn't necessarily say it was hipstery, but there were plenty of people who went there more because it was the coffee house than because of the coffee. I mean, uh, Samuel Pepys is quite an interesting guy in this respect. Pepys used to go to coffee houses basically so he could promote his career and get deals. He hated coffee, made him sick, but he would go and do it because this was the important thing to do. And we'll be back after the short break. Did you know that beans were once considered to be an aphrodisiac? or that cornflakes were invented to have precisely the opposite effect. Join me, Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex, scandal and society, a new podcast from History Hit, where I, Kate Lister, ask the questions about the stuff we didn't learn in school, or sex ed. We'll be bed-hopping around different time periods, from ancient civilizations to the Middle Ages to Renaissance and early modern right up to now. Listen and subscribe to Betwixt the Sheets, wherever you get your podcasts.
Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The other thing I wanted to, just while we're in this particular period and we're seeing coffee sort of moving around, when did it become sort of cheap and ubiquitous? Is it still at this point a kind of delicacy, as it were? So we moved from Africa and, you know, within sort of religious circles and then into the coffee houses of London. Is it still a cheap product? And when did it become a cheap, ubiquitous product? Right. So, no, it's not a cheap product at all. It's an expensive product and very much one that is in a kind of a way almost a status product. It starts by becoming cheaper in the 18th century, and that is as a result really of the massive expansion of coffee growing and the use of sort of plantation slavery by the European nations to do that. So that increases the ability to produce coffee, to produce it at a lower cost, and in some cases to incorporate that into, for want of a better word, less well-off diets. So they're probably the first people who are drinking coffee who are non-elite are probably weavers in sort of Flanders, that area where, again, you're using that psychoactive element of it because you're basically, if you drink coffee, particularly if you put milk into it or whatever, you can kind of create a hot drink that you can have that will also both energize you and feed you whilst you don't stop working at your loom. And of course, if you're on piecework rates, you don't want to stop working. So that's the the sort of the start of that. And then by the 19th century, of course, this is getting more common and we're beginning to see more industrial style applications. So the big takeoff in mass coffee is in the US in the second half of the 19th century. And that's sort of technology markets and growing related. So all things come together really at that point. That's interesting. And actually, well, you know, coffee in America we think about American history, we like to think of Boston tea parties and tea leaves. And at some point must have taken Americans drank tea, I think I'm right in thinking. And then Boston Tea Party, I forget the date. Correct. Shockingly, it's the most famous date in American history. (laughs) I think they'd say it's close to the most famous date in American history, which is me cheating because I'm thinking 1776 is the most famous date. But the Boston Tea Party is just before that. But no, so the Boston Tea Party is the origin story of Americans liking coffee. And again, it's a bit of an origin story that if you push it, it doesn't quite hold. It's the origin story of them not liking British tea or coffee, you see, and both of those things. But really, 
the first big spike, I think, in coffee drinking in America, which then generates that mass market is the US Civil War. Because the troops in the US Civil War are given a massive amount of coffee, or rather one side is the Union side. The Confederate side can't get coffee. They're desperately trying to make stuff with acorns. But the Confederates drink a huge amount. They get a ration of coffee and it would have given you 10 to 12 cups a day. Great. And it's That's my style. Right, exactly. And in, I mean, there's a great stat which says that if you go through the diaries of soldiers in the American Civil War on the Union side, they use the word coffee more often than they use the word rifle, gun or bullet. <laughs> okay. And they just drink coffee all the time, absolutely all the time. And their generals are very aware of the value of that and keep pushing out as much coffee as they can. And of course, that creates a massive demand post Civil War because you've got now a, a group of people who are very, very heavily into coffee you know and so that then coincides with the abilities to start producing coffee product that can be preserved both in terms of the product itself and also the packaging around it so important technical innovations and it means that you can start coffee roasting as a business as opposed to what it was till then something that you probably got your grocer to do or you did in the street because you just bought the beans yourself who's the big name in coffee roasting then okay so the first two big names the name in terms of producing coffee roasters is a guy called Jakob Burns, Jabez Burns rather, who's a kind of inventor of coffee roasting machines. But the real guys who start this off are called Arbuckles. John Arbuckle in Philadelphia uses these machines, creates an industrial scale plant, you know, using big roasters and is putting out product which he has actually glazed with egg which he says preserves this more. And this is sort of shipped off in packages and it goes particularly, for example, to people who are heading out to the West. They'll take it on their wagons or they'll, you know, have cowboys brew it up in their kettles or whatever. And so this becomes a brand, a coffee brand. It's a branded coffee, very different from, again, what would have happened before. The brand, of course, that I grew up with because I'm very young. I'm not very young. <laughs> Why did coffee become so terrible when I was growing up? So I, I grew up in the 70s and 80s. Nescafe, when did freeze-dried... Why the hell did freeze-dried instant coffee? Who invented it and why did they invent it, given it tastes terrible? Okay, so there is quite a few stories coming together on that. Why? Well, it starts off... Nescafe started getting interested in... Or Nestle started being used, uh, interested in that because Brazil in the 30s had just a massive oversupply of coffee and they were desperately trying to get rid of it and find any other way that it could be processed to you know, generate it because you've got this coffee that's bluntly going stale because nobody wants to buy it. And one of the people they asked to look at that was Nestle and after a number of years they came up with Nescafe but by the time they came up with it the Brazilians were not in quite the same position but most of all because this was 1938 we're about to get a major war so going back to that whole connection between coffee and conflict again the u.s troops were supplied with nescafe or the first kind of you know instant style coffee that nescafe produced in this freeze-dries method and not only of course did they use it and that generate the demand for the project they took it back into europe with them and so you know those stories of let's say wives in sort of betraying their husbands for good coffee 
during the Second World War basically relate to this because they have, you know, hey, babe, I've got coffee. I can see how that would work. I've been in situations where people have presented me with instant coffee and I've lost it. I've gone over the edge. Well, you know, you could have been in the gold blood couple, careful. But it's funny that sort of instant coffee was a sort of cheap alternative. Well, certainly I remember in the 1980s in Britain, it became more and more aspirational in terms of the way it was marketed. It was, I want to say the ambassador's reception, that's something else. But you know what I mean? They had these sort of gold blends and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Why not just have coffee if you're being aspirational? It suddenly became just a thing a thing in its own right. Yeah. I think there's a flip side there, which is also important, which is you're asking about why it becomes more popular and cheaper again. And again, that is partly because from the 50s on, and particularly in instant coffee, we see a lot more entry of another coffee species called Robusta, which is easier to grow in some respects. It's certainly more hardy as a crop. And that is cheaper and a lot of that is placed in instant coffee so you blend it into your instant and having blended it with your arabica that also of course creates the ability to create your aspirational instant coffee which doesn't contain robusta but could be said to be you know gold blend and presumably after the second world war did we stop drinking proper coffee because it just wasn't available after the war rationing etc It's partly that coffee is rationed and it stays on the ration till 52. It's partly because actually by then Britain had become quite a tea drinking nation. And it's this suspicion of, well, coffee might be difficult to make. Um, And so, you know, if you make it really easy to make, then it's easier for us to skip all that need to be knowledge, but the convenience. And then the other least semi-true element to that is this coincides with the rise of TV, particularly commercial TV. And so, you know, if you could make your hot beverage during an ad break, but then this is sort of perfect, isn't it? You know, I've got a two minute break, I go and make my coffee and I'm back watching the TV. That's it. I mean, I grew up, you know, drinking Nescafe and, you know, after my essay thing. Actually, you know, the real abomination at that time was, I think it was Mellow Birds. It was like a coffee powder. It was like shockingly bad, really, really bad. And then suddenly, I guess, round about the early 90s, certainly when I moved to London, there was no Starbucks. There was no hipstification of coffee like there is now. The no. Coffee shops just didn't exist. And then somewhere, I guess, in the mid-90s, we all started shunning instant coffee. And instant coffee became very much a kind of working class thing. And then hipster middle class people started drinking real coffee again. Well, I think what really happens there, I also lived that period through London. And in fact, that was what started making me think about the history of coffee because I started as an Italian historian, yeah, a historian of Italy. And in the early 90s, when I first started teaching, was about the time that Costa was beginning to expand before it had even become a big brand, but it had just started opening places. It opened one on Euston Station that I recall really well. Old Compton Street, I think. Yeah, that would be right. Yeah. And so these places were just mind-blowing. Because for me, the mind-blowing thing was, wow, I've been in Italy, I've worked in Italy, and, you know, the coffee is wonderful there. And now somebody finally is bringing in this kind of coffee. And then from the mid-90s, that goes wild. You have Costa, you have Cafe Nero. Costa was bought by Whitbread in the mid-90s. And really what they were doing was trying to create something because they could see what was happening in America with Starbucks and they wanted to get in ahead of the market. And that's really when things flip out. And that, you know, flips with a lot of things. There's a whole British kind of takeoff isn't there in the late 80s to mid 90s where suddenly food becomes fashionable a lot of things are flipped on their head yeah i mean it, but it also does seem to be a very sort of class 
divide thing as well. It's like, what kind of coffee do you drink? It's still very much a kind of... Yeah, no, absolutely. It's still something that says something about your status, in effect. What I would say is coffee ceases to be kind of like an everyday drink and it becomes a lifestyle drink. Exactly, yeah. No, again, like you say, food as well, you know, it's become this great divide. You know, it's funny, actually, where I live, I live near a chapel market. And it's really funny, that market on a Sunday, because... On Sunday, half the market is like farmer's market and it's all like organic. And then the other half of the market is just normal market. And it's really weird. There is literally a line in the road where you see this kind of culture class clash. I don't like this sort of division. Coffee is a big sort of player in that. Yeah, well, coffee is a great marker. And I mean, if you were to read the papers from that time, for example, I mean, they're all just full of articles about, you know, what just, wow, latte, how amazing, you know. Okay, talk about coffee and conflict. This is why I get really anxious in coffee shops and really quite cross. <laughs> I hate the language of coffee yeah. because it's designed to be in a kind of exclusive language, like you say, to give you that feeling of exclusivity or yeah. they speak the yeah. language. So when yeah, I go into exactly. a, a Starbucks or something and ask, I just want a black coffee and they look at me like I'm an idiot yeah. because there's, you know. And also the other thing that drives me crazy is they said, do you want a medium or a large? I'm like, well, you can't have medium if there's any two things. And I go, oh, this is probably me being a curmudgeon and a grumpy old man. No, I don't think you're being a curmudgeon. I agree with (laughs) you. And personally, I always just say a small and this throws them totally. But I mean, there's a reason about this too, which is really that there's a fundamental difference in the way perhaps that we or that our market values things and it puts quite a lot of value on volume so if you compare that with the italian espresso yes you know the original reactions is what's the point of the espresso because it's so small and you drink it so quickly but of course in italy the point of the espresso is exactly that it's that it's really flavorful and does the business quick for you (laughs) so it's uh, you know it's our different perceptions of that that's really interesting i just want to talk to you a little bit about sort of technology because now you know, for me, the things like all you need is a bit of filter paper and a funnel and you'll get a really good cup of coffee. That's as far or, you know, a French press. But now it's becoming really techno as well. You know, things yeah. like Nespresso machines with these little pods that you put in. I just can't bear all that. Anyway, why do we have these? Why did we need them? Why did we create this need for this techno coffee? OK, so I think what we... George Clooney. <laughs> Sorry. Right. Let me, let me unpack Bring that, back as Gareth we say, Hunt. in our business. <laughs> so I think we go back to that value proposition, first of all. If you go into the coffee shop, the value proposition is seeing somebody make coffee in a way that you can't or don't have time for, possibly. Hence arty things on froth. Hence arty things on froth. It looks very nice, and you've got a big whacking coffee machine that you can't afford to have in your house if you're ordinary, like us, right? Whereas if I go into a shop and ask for a tea and they give me a tea bag and charge me £2.80 for it, I'm thinking I could have done this better at home. I can't really think that about the thing with the beautiful bit of artwork on it. Do you see what I mean? So there's a value proposition there. Once we then get to the point that people really want to be able to do that in the home, then you have the reason why we have Nespresso type capsules, because that's still a really difficult thing to do. I mean, yes, you could invest a lot in your own coffee machine. Don't, by the way, because unless you're also going to invest an awful lot in your grinder and in your milk frother and in all the rest of it, you're never going to produce coffee like you can do in the coffee bar. But the Nespresso machine gives you a way of doing that, which is, if you like, the instant coffee equivalent of 
specialty coffee. It's marketing. Basically, I'm just getting really cross about capitalism, I think, sometimes. I'm more accepting because I'm more accepting in the sense that I think Nespresso delivers a product, but that product is not the same as a fresh espresso. How do you make coffee in your house? I make coffee every rich way, but I start with a French press every morning because that is actually, to my mind, that's a great way of tasting good coffee. You know, you'll understand what's in your coffee when you do that. And that's dead easy. Hey, listen, we're sort of running out of time, which is annoying. That is a real shame. We could do another three hours here. Easy. <laughs> Well, luckily, you've done a whole podcast that sort of continues. Actually, this has been quite nice. It's a bit like the espresso version of your podcast. If your podcast is the French press version, very good. And you can wallow in that. And this has been the short hit. It's a really, really interesting story. And actually, again, like all good invention stories, it taps into culture and politics and history in lots of really lots of interesting ways. And so I want to say a huge thank you for coming on the show and just giving us that little taster of what the history of coffee has to offer. Jonathan, thank you. Yeah, you're very welcome. And like you say, if anyone wants to explore more, there's a whole podcast series out there. There we go. Right, that's it for this episode. Time to put the kettle on. Hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget to hit subscribe if you've been enjoying the podcast. Don't forget to listen to our other episodes. Hey, next episode is a Jubilee special. So we were thinking about what we could talk about for the Platinum Jubilee celebrations. And it occurred to me we hadn't done that many culinary inventions. So I thought what we'd do is we'd do a special on one of my favourite dishes, which was invented for the Queen's coronation. It is, of course coronation chicken so we're going to be talking about the ins and outs of that great staple that great 1970s i guess it was a very 1970s 1980s popular dish coronation chicken it's delicious so make sure you join me for that While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch, download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code PATENTED at the checkout. You get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.